We started the series last week and talked uh, a little bit about uh, reclaiming revelation, that uh, we want to try to get away from charts and graphs and, and move into the real-life stuff, and especially before we move into the symbolic stuff, because we do take seriously the, the, the things of the end times and the promises and the, uh, the things that will unfold as they already have been unfolding. But the Spirit who wrote to John or the Spirit who spoke to John, Jesus Himself, he, there, there are some things He wanted us to understand first, that these are messages for the churches. They're not just messages for far out there, they are messages for the churches. And the title of today's message is Wasted Works, Wasted Works. But let me first sort of delve into the idea that our study through Revelation, when we're looking at churches, and I borrow this phrase from my friend Walt Mueller, who's a, a culture reader, and he says, culture is both a mirror and a map. It tells us the way things are in real time, but it also gives us an indication of how things might unfold. And that's what Revelation is. It is both a mirror and a map. And, and it, it's a mirror in that it tells us how things were in the first century, and in a lot of ways how they are today, and in even more ways how they will unfold as God brings the church age to a close. There are two of the churches that we usually remember. Now, I had to memorize the list of them. Wilton, it would be advanced Bible drill if you could name all seven of these churches because nobody else in here can either. But we don't remember Smyrna, except that it's a city in Atlanta. We don't remember Pergamum. We're not even sure what that is. Certainly not Thyatira or Sardis. Philadelphia we've heard of because of the home of the eagles, and, but we really know the first one and the last one. Ephesus, talked about it last week. They are the church that lost their first love. They didn't lose it, they abandoned it. Their love for people, perhaps, their love for God. And we talked last week about what God said about that. I know your works, and, and He says, you have abandoned your first love. We remember that one, and we also remember the last one. Anybody? Laodicea. And what do we know about Laodicea? Puke. <laughs> it's not pleasant, but it gets your attention, doesn't it? And we, we remember that he told Ephesus, you've lost your love. You've abandoned your love. And we remember that he told Laodicea, you are neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, so I will spew you out of my mouth. The literal word is vomit. We don't like that word. We don't enjoy that word. We, we don't really appreciate it if it's us, and we appreciate it less if it's somebody else. 
And as far as I know, I, I can only think of, of two places in the Bible where it really talks about it. One is where Jonah is projectile ejected from the mouth of a whale onto the beach, and that word is used. And the other one is here. And with Jonah, we have this redeeming value, like get it over with and, and start feeling better. But the idea that Jesus would pronounce this over a church. Now, Dale, I understand that you've got Dr. Pepper socks on today. I am a Texan, and I don't talk about being a Texan very much because I know that it offends anybody who's not a Texan. Because you're correct that one of the favorite topics of Texans is being Texans. The national drink of Texas is Dr. Pepper. For a long time, you couldn't even buy anything else at the stadium at Baylor University. It wasn't until the 2000s, mid-2000s, that they got a contract with Pepsi, and so, so all of a sudden, something besides Dr. Pepper shows up. But I remember growing up in Texas, and there were commercials all over about hot Dr. Pepper. Some of you are cringing, rightfully so. But they tried to sell it as a holiday drink. So instead of spiced tea, and certainly instead of pumpkin spice, I, I know that a lot of you love it, but I, 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 I just cringe every October. But hot Dr. Pepper was something that you were encouraged to, to serve, and, and I drank it when I was a kid, and I felt like I was so adult drinking a hot beverage out of a mug that wasn't hot chocolate. So hot Dr. Pepper is good, and certainly cold Dr. Pepper is good. I mean, many of you are just, you're converts from the uh, national drink of Atlanta, Georgia, and that, that cold Dr. Pepper. But boy, if it's been sitting on your desk for a while, if the ice is all melted and it's just kind of there, it reminds you that you don't really like anything that's lukewarm. And so he's going to build to this, John is, as he writes, under the prompting of Jesus. He's, he's going to take us through a number of churches where he talks about the, the mediocrity that in the 60 years since Jesus has resurrected has sort of set into their church DNA. And, 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 and I, I remember that each one of these letters has a pattern, right? He, he greets the church. He identifies himself, Jesus, as the author of the message. He talks about the condition of the church. I, I know your works. I know your deeds. And that phrase is used a lot. I know your works. And then he pronounces some kind of a, a, a condemnation or a verdict on the church. Two of them, the, the, the rebuke is very, very mild. 
And then he says, here's what's gonna, here's what you should do. Last week we talked about the things that they were doing well and the things that they weren't doing well, and here's what you ought to do about it. And here's what happens if you don't. That pattern repeats through all seven of the churches. And so as I describe the churches from the Scripture, I'm, I'm building up to Laodicea because that's, that's sort of the, the, the map part of it. The, the, the churches are sort of the mirror part. They, they show us what these churches were doing, and, and if we're very observant, they show us what we're doing and what we're not doing. But when we get to Laodicea, he, he, he sort of summarizes all of it, and I'll get there in just a moment. So the seven churches, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, the first one, since, well, the first one we talked about last week was Ephesus. And if you were here last week, I showed you a map and, and that, that the, the seven churches are named in sort of a, a counterclockwise pattern, beginning with Ephesus and then north to Smyrna and then all the way around in sort of a counterclockwise circle to get back to Laodicea. All are about 50 miles apart except the distance from Laodicea to Ephesus, and that's about 100 miles. But people who go visit these churches can do all of them in two days because it's just a, a, a pattern. And in a, in a car using the roads that have been built over the top of the Roman roads that were existing back in the day, he describes all these churches. So Smyrna is just a little bit north of uh, Ephesus. And he says, to the angel or to the leader of the church at Ephesus, uh, at Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And so he, 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 he says to the church, I know you and I write, I am the first and the last. I am Jesus. I, I was dead, and, and three days later, uh, I was resurrected. The, the, the Father allowed me to walk out of the tomb. I'm the one who's writing to you. Now, a little bit about Smyrna. It was, uh, um, it was not unlike many of the other villages or the, or the towns at the time. It had a, a very strong Jewish population that had migrated into Asia Minor. It had a, a strong Greek and Roman presence. The uh, worship of the Greek and Roman gods had been strong but was beginning to decline. That, that was uh, all of these churches, and it was being replaced by emperor worship. In other words, the, the Roman emperor was becoming more of an object of worship than Zeus and Hera and all of the other Greek and Roman gods. That They still had a lot of temples that were to them. I wonder if John would have us make the observation that they say that they paid attention to the Greek and Roman gods, but they were pretty much just going through the motions. Maybe that's the mirror part, that we need to be very careful that we say that we are something, but in a lot of times we're just going through the motions. And so the emperor worship that had begun to creep in, it was pretty strong in Smyrna. 
And it was strong to the point that the, uh, the, the laws of the, the town allowed the Jewish people to plunder the property of the Christians pretty much at will. Because it was legal to be Jewish, it wasn't necessarily protected to be a Christian. So the Christians lived under a constant fear that the Jewish people would just take their stuff because by law they could. And so Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And that's what he's talking about. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and they are not. By the way, that's a phrase he uses a lot. Obviously, John has a lot of respect for the devout Jews, the, the, the ones who, who do what they say, who, who worship the way that Jewish people worship. But these, these Jews had, had so lost their, their fear of God that their Jewishness was now sort of a, a cultural badge that they wore. And so he actually says that phrase several times through the letters of the churches. You live among people who say they are Jews, but they are not. They are not really uh, uh, looking for the Messiah. And he says here, and, and again, he, he, he says this phrase here and again to the church at Philadelphia, he says they are really just a synagogue of Satan. Wow, that's strong words. They, they claim to be Jews, but they are so far away from the covenant of Abraham that they are, they are worshiping Satan. They're, just, they're, they're so far off the reservation. And he says, these people are persecuting you. I know that. I know that they are canceling you in the culture. I know that they are taking your stuff. I, I know that, it's, that you live in poverty. I know that some of you are being thrown into prison. I know that you may be tested. He uses the word 10 days here, which is the time of testing that Daniel went through, and he's referring to that. And the, what he's saying is that it's not a, an indefinite testing. It's a, it's a testing that has a beginning and an end. And so he says, I know all these things. Be faithful. Be faithful. I will give you the crown of life. And then here's the, the general pronunciation to all of us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And then the promise, the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. So the address to the church, the introduction of Jesus, the statement of the conditions in the church, the verdict or the pronunciation, the general exhortation for everybody, and then a promise of reward. That's, that's what repeats throughout. So he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's exactly what you think it is. That, that yes, we will all die physically, but the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That phrase, the one who conquers, if you've got a highlighter with you, you can find that phrase in almost every letter to every church because that's sort of the end game. Here are the things that you're going to have to go through. Here are the conditions of your city. Here are the challenges that you face. But, but I'm telling you, you, you can't cave in to the ways of the culture. 
And he says that especially to Pergamum. So we're, 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 we're going in our counterclockwise pattern. We've gone from Ephesus to Smyrna, now Pergamum. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. What does that make you think of? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, it says in Hebrews. And so there's a, a, a pronunciation. Jesus introduces himself as the word, as the one who will give us the word, as the one who will guide us through the word. That, that's who he introduces himself. I'm Jesus. And he says, I know where you dwell. Interesting phrase. He says, you're, you're, you're there for the long haul. You're not just passing through. I, I know that you've got to be there and it's got to get better or not. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, here he's using Satan's throne, and it's a, a real cryptic reference. I said last week that there were a lot of things in Revelation that speak to the first century, and a lot that speak to centuries that will come immediately after that, but before us things that are happening now and things that will happen between now and the end of time. Well, this was one of the things that were, was happening then, and this is referring to emperor worship. Uh, Pergamum was sort of the seat of the government. There was a, there was a lot of, uh, of uh, emperor, Roman kind of things there, and there was a, a shrine to the emperor. And so he says, the seat of Satan is where you dwell. And he wasn't going to come out and say the Roman emperor is Satan, but he's cryptic enough to make us understand what he was saying. He's saying, you guys have it tough. You live in a place where the emperor worship is so strong that, that, that for you to continue to worship Jesus Christ, the, the one whose two-edged sword comes from his mouth, for you to keep worshiping him, it's tough. It's a hard thing. He says, but here's what you need to see about yourself. Here's the mirror. You're allowing some false teaching among you. And this sounds cryptic to you, but let me unpack it. I have a few things against you, some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, that was a, 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 a prophet in the Old Testament who uh, took a bribe from a king in order to entice the Jewish people to stop worshiping God and start worshiping idols because he knew that if the Jewish people would turn their attention from the one true God, that his protection would be removed from them and the king could conquer them. What a, what a great fear in the Old Testament. He says, you guys are doing the same thing. This emperor worship stuff is creeping in, and you're, you're beginning to have people among you that say, you know, why don't we just get along? How hard is it really to just accommodate the, the ways of the culture in this little thing, in this little thing? The little things aren't just little things. He says, you allow this. And, and then he, he says, here's two specific things. He says, they eat food sacrificed to idols, and they practice sexual immorality. Now, when we talk about the next church, Thyatira, I'll talk about a, a, a twofold adultery, but that, that, that seems to be these two churches, 
geographically fairly close. And they had begun to commit adultery spiritually because they no longer considered the practices of sacrificial giving and eating and the Jewish kind of ways, and obviously those went away with the sacrifice of Christ. But he says, you know, there's basically he's saying you're blending in with the culture to the point that nobody can even tell you apart. You're eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, in the next church, there was a, a particular setting for that, but in this, in this setting, it was just like you go to parties and don't have any regard to what you put in your mouth, how you act, what you say, what you do. You're committing spiritual adultery. But he says you're also committing immorality. The promiscuity was very real. Was, was, and, and, and part of what he's saying is that in the, the, the t- place where they were, it was a part of religion with these Roman and Greek temples that still existed, and to some extent, emperor worship as well. That, 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 that the promiscuity was part of the religion, and, uh, and basically it was just an excuse to do whatever their desires led them to do. So a, a twofold adultery, he says, and, and then he layers on top of it. You remember the Nicolaitans from the uh, Ephesus. He said, some of you hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so he says, these things you tolerate, this twofold adultery, you accommodate. And now some of you are trying to corrupt others. You remember the word Nicolaitans means to, to, uh, uh, to control people. So he says, you, you are committing this twofold adultery. Not, not all of you, some of you, you're allowing it. And you're beginning to corrupt others. So he says, repent. I will come to you soon. I will war against them. And then here's that phrase again, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, which was just daily provision. That's what, that's what it's supposed to say. Cryptic, I will give him a white stone. You know what this refers to? I don't know if you've ever been in a fraternity or a, a voting situation where you heard the term blackball, where the box is passed, and if somebody's voting no, they drop a black ball. If somebody's voting yes, they drop a white ball. A white stone was, has long been considered part of a, a voting process where it is a, a statement of approval, a statement of approval. And so he says, I'm going to give you a statement of approval. I'm going to give you a new name written on that stone. So then he talks about the church just a little farther north and a little bit east. Thyatira, or Thyatira, was a town of craftsmen. So picture a lot of craft guilds, the stonemasons and the ironworkers and the goldsmiths and the silversmiths and the bronze workers. <coughs> so he, this, this is the, the setting here. He says, so the angel of the church... At Thyatira, I just like the way it sounds, 
the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet are like bronze. In other words, he sees everything and bronze is, is known to be a pure metal. So he can go where he wants to go. He can see what he wants to see. That's who's writing this. And obviously that's Jesus introducing himself. So here's the pattern. I know your works. You've been love, faith, service, patient endurance. Your latter works exceeds the first. He says, I, I know that you have all these things and that they're increasing among you. You guys are not only doing good, you're, you're getting better at doing good. And he says, great job. But I have this against you. So here, here's the, 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 the accusation. And, and this sounds a little bit like Pergamum because he goes back to the Old Testament and he says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, if you're looking at your copy of God's Word, it would be a better translation to say your woman Jezebel. There's a, there's a personal pronoun that goes with that. And it's, it's like she was somebody who was known. Her name wasn't Jezebel, likely. You know, we that's one of those names you never name a kid anymore. Here's my little daughter Jezebel. Nobody does that. And her brother Judas, we just don't. <laughs> so he's, he's bringing an Old Testament image that everybody's familiar with. She was an evil queen who stood against the, the Jewish people. And, and, and she was apparently prominent, Judy no offense, but a lot of people think she was the pastor's wife. Uh, I, I didn't write it. But that it's, you, you, you see that they, she was a leader in the church. And, they, and yet, she encouraged the same thing that he went to task with Pergamum. You allow food sacrifice to idols, and you allow sexual immorality. Here's the difference in my mind with this setting. A lot of people think that the trade guilds had social events. So, so if you were anybody who was anybody, you needed to go to these parties. Hey, the who's who and see and be seen and, and network and, and my people will get with your people and we'll do lunch. That they were these social business events that if you missed out on them, you were going to miss business. You were going to miss social connections. You were going to be left out economically, socially, all of the above. And so apparently this woman Jezebel was saying, listen, just because you drink, that'll make you a drinker. Just because you have a, an affair now and then, that doesn't make you an adulterer. Food sacrifice to idols, immoral relationships, they're all part of just doing business. Jesus is harsh. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I'm going to throw her onto a sickbed. 
In other words, I'm going I'm to let it run its course. Whatever happens is going to happen. I'm not going to protect her anymore. And that, that goes back to the, the Balaam thing, that if, if he can get people to worship other things, his protection in some ways is removed. It doesn't say that they no longer uh, have any identity or any places. You remember, he's holding the churches in his hand. But he's saying the consequences are going to run their course. He goes on, and there's one more thing about this church I want you to see. Verse 24, uh, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, you that have studied the word, you know the word Gnosticism. You know this idea that that the, uh, in the first century and beyond, there arose this, this teaching that some Christians said, we're better than you because we know more than you. We understand the mysterious things about the Word of God, and you can't possibly, you're the unwashed masses. And John is sort of making fun of that way of thinking. And then he says, but here's the flip. The Nicolaitans call themselves to conquer the people, but 27, no, you will rule. You will rule, and the word rule is better translated shepherd. You will shepherd the people. You will shepherd over them. Quickly, Sardis, city who lacks life. Interesting thing about this city is that picture a city on top of Stone Mountain. How hard would that be to defend? right? Sheer cliffs, 1,500 feet down. And yet the city had been conquered multiple times, all for the same reason, lack of vigilance. Don't pay attention. Uh, There's even a story that that a Roman uh, legion was trying to conquer uh, Sardis, and and the, the commander said, find me a way in. And he, the soldier just watched the city for a little bit, and one of the helmets of one of the soldiers guarding the city fell over the wall, and he saw that soldier emerge through a hidden passage, and he just waited till nightfall and led a commandment of soldiers up that passage. They, they just, they were lazy in their faith. And that's basically what he was saying. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Be vigilant. Stop, stop just compromising in little ways. Stop, stop or start doing the things of discipline again. Remember Hebrews, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those who are trained up in it yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's a, a discipline. You guys aren't doing any of that. I've found your works incomplete in the sight of God. You're lazy. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it, repent. If you will not wake up, I will come as a thief. There's the the promise, the the, the accusation. Yet there are still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me. And here he goes again. The one who conquers will be clothed, clothed this way. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Philadelphia is the only church he doesn't fuss at. We're, we're almost complete in the loop, and Philadelphia is the church you won't fuss at. You know what Philadelphia means, right? 
you've heard it, the city of brotherly love. And, and it was founded as an outpost for the Greek way of life. They were, they were founded as, a, as an exporter of Greek culture. So they were planted as a city to be a missionary city. They were planted as a city to export the language and the, uh, the ways of what it is to be Greek. So the, the Hellenistic culture was to be sort of launched into the pagan outer darkness from there east of where Philadelphia is. It's the, one of the easternmost parts of the, the, this loop. And it was designed to be a missionary city. So, so listen to his language to them. He says, I know your ways. The words of the Holy and True One, that's Jesus, has the key of David. That comes from uh, Isaiah. I know your works. I've set before you an open door. There you go. That you, you were founded as an open door kind of city, and I'm going to tell you the gospel is part of your open door. You, yet you have kept my word. You've not denied my name. I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, again, Jews who don't act like Jews, who say they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come down and bow before you. They will learn, I love this line, that I've loved you. Church, if there's something we want to see, he's loved us. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar. So that pattern repeats over and over. And basically what he's talking about in those cities is there is some element of the culture that is trying to make you compromise. And I think that's the point where all of us can say, what is that thing in my life right now? What friend, what habit, what place I go, what I read, what I watch, what I consume, what is that thing that would ask you to compromise? And I, and I think if I was pulling all of the letters together, I would say that's the place where we have to start. Yes, we know that Jesus is writing us this letter. And we know that next week we're going to talk about the throne room of God and the symbolism that He is worthy to open the seals. And that's who's writing us these letters. And yet he says to us, as you approach the throne room, take a look at where you are as you interact with culture, as you interact with your workplace, your family, your media consumption, the things you, you do, the things you say. Take a look. And so he says to Laodicea, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And Laodicea was a very wealthy town. It's a little bit like Ephesus and Smyrna in that, that it had the benefit of, of being at a commercial crossroads, but wealthy beyond what we could think. Uh, uh, one person has written it as a, as a subdivision, this is the church in affluent society. Ring a bell, Dunwoody? It's the church an affluent society. He doesn't soft-pedal it. 
He doesn't even say anything they're doing right. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Laodicea did not have a natural water supply. They didn't have a spring or, a, or, a, or, or, or like an aquifer. They pretty much had to channel water from other places. And by the time that water got to them, it was lukewarm. There were hot springs nearby. They knew what hot water was. And over at Colossa, which is not far from there, the church at Colossa, the letter to the Colossians, they had a, a reputation for crisp, cold water. He said, but you Laodiceans, you, you know what lukewarm is. Nobody really likes it. You're not hot. You're not cold. He says, I know your works would be that you were either cold or hot, but because you're neither one, I will spit you out of my mouth. For I say that I am rich. You say that I am rich. In other words, you say you are rich. You've prospered. You don't need anything. You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Poor, Laodicea was a famous banking town. Blind, Laodicea had a famous medical school. Naked, they were known for their clothing and their famous black wool from the sheep that grazed nearby. He says, you think you've got it all together, but in your faith, you're lukewarm. Interesting thing, he says, I counsel you to buy gold banking, refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments, clothing, so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness and salve to appoint your eyes med school. He says the things you're trusting in, the industry, the education, the, the, the affluent society, lukewarm. He says, uh, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. You know, I've gone a lot along, we've got a lot of churches to talk about. But it ends up the same place it did last week. The council of the churches in Revelation, the mirror and the map, is that we are to remember the one who saved us. We are to examine the things of culture that have crept into our decision-making and repent, turn 180 degrees back to the amen, back to the faithful and true, back to the one who saved us. Remember, repent, return. And I'll add another one. If we do that, refresh, refresh. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, what a mouthful. And what a handful. God, you've told us that your ways are right, that your ways are pure. Father, you've told us that these words are both a mirror and a map, that they are reflective of the way things are, and I pray that we'll have the courage to look in the mirror. But I also pray that we'll have the courage to look down the road and see what you're promising us if we don't repent. 
God, there's somebody in this room who's absolutely confused because they've never heard any of this before. And I pray that through all of this, they will understand Jesus. That conversations will begin about what it would mean to follow the faithful and true. What does it mean to be the one who conquers because they have been with the one who is there from the beginning. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for the opportunity to look into the mirror and to consider the map. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand as we close our service this morning. Hymn number 815, The Doxology.